and welcome to Suede. This is Sarah Osteen, and I am talking to my friend uh, Morgan Ruff today. And I know Morgan through mutual friends, and Morgan has applied makeup to me at a beauty counter party. Uh, but most importantly, Morgan is the Snohomish Basin Capital Projects Coordinator and is very focused on salmon recovery. And so our conversation today is going to be pretty focused on influencing policy and some of the challenges that that she's facing in her world. After Morgan listened to the recording, she wanted to add a couple of thoughts that felt like would make sense to include in the beginning here. So Morgan, I want to pass it back to you. I just wanted to express how much I enjoyed talking with you. And one of the things that I uh, realized that I forgot to mention while we were talking, but I think is really important, is just to recognize um, in our conversation, I talk about how I work for a tribe. And one of the things that's very important to recognize is that I don't speak for the tribe. I'm actually not a tribal member. I'm really just sharing my perspective as a staff for the tribe. Really, this, these are sovereign governments that we're talking about. And really, no one speaks for the tribe except for the, the chairperson. And I think there's a very, very long history in tribal communities of other people um, speaking for the tribes or often with good intention. Um, but I just wanted to make sure that it was really clear and I wasn't being complicit in that history and that this was really sharing my perspective on salmon rec- recovery and orca recovery as a staff member and as somebody who's just really trying to work on the ground and figure out ways to move these things forward. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, hopefully I'll get a chance to talk to a member of the tribe or a tribe uh some point soon. Um, also, I think there was like some a little funny language thing you got. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know. Um, so when I'm talking about the southern resident killer whales, I kept on saying pesticides, and pesticides are like a component of persistent pollutions. That that is um, the real problem with the whales, but it's not really the only thing. It's really when I was saying pesticide, I meant persistent pollution. <laughs> and so anyway, there's, it's always so funny to go back and listen to yourself and go, Oh, whoops, I messed up that word. <laughs> well, I don't think anybody would have noticed, but now they'll play <laughs> special attention. That's right. <laughs> so Morgan, thanks so much for being here today. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. So yeah, let's start from the beginning. I'd love to hear a little bit about your background and how you ended up in this this role. Yeah, sure. Well, um, I grew up here in the Pacific Northwest in Puget Sound. And one of the things that's really unique to our region and to this place is people tend to have a pretty deep connection to nature and to being outside. It's like a huge part of why so many of us are here and living in this area. You know, a lot of folks think it just rains here all the time, but actually really it is a pretty spectacular place to live. And so uh, as a child growing up in the Seattle area, we would spend our summers basically outside. And that really developed this very, very deep connection to this place. And when I was a kid, I actually, uh, I think I was probably about 10 when this started to happen. Through my 20s, I would actually have encounters with whales on my birthday every single year. 
Oh. It was like, it was really incredible. And part of it is I was just in the right place. So I would spend my summers out in the San Juan Islands where the Southern resident killer whales tend to, to live and forage. And, or I would be out with my family. We would do like annual fishing trips out in um, the Straits of Juan de Fuca. And every once in a while, we just have some whales stop by and say hi. And so I developed this long-term love affair with the killer whales that that live here in our area. And those whales sort of stuck with me through my life. And even though uh, we talked about how I work in salmon recovery, the whales are really close to that. As a child, very connected to nature. I spent over 10 years working as a guide and naturalist in the San Juan Islands and also up in Southeast Alaska leading boat-based kayak trips. And we would go out and we'd see bears and we'd see glaciers and we kayak with the humpback whales and the sea lions. It was just this amazing, rich uh, experience to have all through my 20s. And I loved being part of bringing people together and helping them have these very unique experiences out in the wilderness and out in the wild. But I also felt like uh, in that time, I wanted to be closer to policy and to influencing some of the changes in the direction that I wanted to see. Um, so even though I was having a blast kayaking and working on boats and being a boat captain, I decided that it was time for me to return to grad school. And I got a master's degree in marine policy. And getting your master's is so much fun because I had just as many people in my class who were absolutely enthralled, and so curious about everything having to do with this obscure topic of marine policy. <laughs> it was really, really fun. Um, and during that time when I was getting my master's, I really started to dive into and learn about the p- tribes here in the Pacific Northwest and the treaty rights that they actually have that help to protect their um, relationship with the salmon. And I learned a little bit more about how salmon play uh, such a vital part in tribal culture. And I really got hooked into this idea of recovering salmon, not just for the ecosystem's sake or for the fuel that those salmon are giving to our endangered killer whales, but also just because it's such an important component for helping the people of our region um, recapture and reclaim their culture and their cultural identity with the salmon. Um, So I really got into salmon recovery through that avenue and worked a little bit for the state of Washington um, with an agency called the Puget Sound Partnership. That agency is really just trying to create the community vision um, for Puget Sound recovery as it moves forward. Worked there for a little while and then moved on to work with the Tulalip tribes up in the Snohomish River Basin, which is a river just north of Seattle. Um, and uh, started working with the Tulalip tribes and the partners within that watershed area to come up with strategies for implementing priority habitat restoration projects. Wow, so much going on. So just to kind of go back uh, to when you were, you know, leading wilderness trips, did you find yourself uh, frustrated about you know, changes in the environment or obviously you want to, you know, going to get your master's gives you more information, but was there something that you specifically that you wanted to change? 
Well, yeah. I mean, it was a number of different things. I was working up in the Tongass National Forest and I was seeing a lot of the changes that were happening with just the way forests were managed in this kind of last remaining stretch of intact temperate rainforest that was, you know, being logged and, and whatnot. And I felt like when I was out on these trips with these these people, um, I was able to share the magic and the wonder and the awe. And I think that's so critically important to developing a greater ecological literacy within our broader public and within our community. But I also felt like I wasn't able to really connect directly to um, creating change for the policies that were allowing these sorts, sorts of changes to happen. And I also, um, you know, I, that was up in Southeast and then, you know, being here in the Puget Sound region, I go up into Southeast in the um, summertime and then on the shoulder seasons, I come back to the Northwest and I just continued to see the decline in our um, killer whale numbers and in the populations of salmon. And I really felt like I needed to be more closely connected to trying to change that. This may be a kind of an ignorant question, but since I don't know the, the nuances of the politics here, why is it particularly important to work with the tribes around these issues? Do they, do they own the land that's particularly affected or why is that more most important? Yeah, yeah. Tribal communities have a very important role in um, recovering and, and restoring these areas, particularly here particularly here in Puget Sound, the tribes actually signed treaties with the federal government back in the mid-1800s. And these treaties helped to secure rights to resources, um, including the right to fish uh, in common with the non-native population for salmon, also secured rights to access usual and the custom um, hunting grounds and um, in exchange to having access to their traditional life ways and ways of harvesting, the tribes agreed to not wage war against the U.S. government and then also to move on to these reservation lands um, where many of the tribes uh, still live today. And so these treaties are the supreme law of the land. They really do influence the way that we are able to... um, work together. Uh, But of course, there's a long history of uh, mistreatment and mistrust that happened uh, through federal policies that really changed um, the way tribes were able to execute those treaties. And I think what we're seeing in this day and age is the tribes are able to start um, through legal action that has come down. Um, They're better able to align with those treaties and use those treaties as a way of supporting the needs of the resource, which then in turn supports the needs of their culture and um, their connection to their community. And so what are the tribes primarily looking for? Is it, does it tend to be very much aligned with, with your work around restoring the environment or are there a lot of differences. Yeah, well, each each tribe is a unique sovereign entity, and right. so each tribe is going to have a different approach and strategy. Um, but from my perspective, well, most of the tribes in Puget Sound really have a strong interest in identifying how they can continue to hunt and fish in a way that would maintain um, culture and their community and their subsistence. 
And so there's a lot of different pathways that you can go to, to creating more fish. Um, and there's different strategies. Um, the work that I'm doing is really trying to address historical changes that have um, made the habitat unsus- unsustainable for fish and trying to create greater opportunities for fish. Um, but there's also Im- equally important strategies like uh, producing more fish through hatcheries, sort of a stopgap measure as we're trying to rebuild the wild populations. Yeah, so that's this is amazing, and I think I, we could probably have a whole other separate conversation on you know communicating effectively with tribes. Um, but uh, so, tell me a little bit more around the specific work that that you're doing um, around salmon preservation and how that's connected to the whales, yeah. etc. Well. I think, you know, a lot of people really care about the Southern resident killer whales. And obviously it was, like I shared, it was really my entry into this world of salmon recovery uh, from a very early age. And recently there's been a lot of news and press coverage around the plight of our local uh, killer whales. Uh, They're currently down to an all-time low of about 73 members in our our little population here and that they're experiencing pressures from so many different angles there's you know historic uh, population takings that happened where people were coming in and taking whales for live captive back in the i don't know 60s and 70s um there's issues around vessels coming in and making a lot of noise so the whales find their food and move around the the water using echolocation. So when you are creating noise in their environment through large uh, boats and other traffic, you interfere with their ability to find food or even just navigate and communicate with each other. Um, they have pollution issues. We have, you know, a region that is rapidly growing and we have problems with um, pollution running off our roads and down into the waters that creates um, pollution issues. And we also have persistent pollution from uh, chemicals and pesticides that we use, you know, could be 30 or 40 years ago that really maintain in the system. And because the whales are the apex predator of the sea, they really, um, whatever they are eating um, accumulates in their blubber and uh, then you know, as they are looking for food and starving, they pull from their blubber resources and a lot of those pesticides and problem um, pollutants will get um, move into their bloodstream. And the other issue is that their primary prey, which is salmon um, and Chinook salmon in particular, king salmon is another name that we use, are, um, they're endangered. And we're at all time record lows of the number of Chinook salmon that are in our area. And those have been historically the fish that um, killer whales have preferred. There's a lot of bang for your buck, energetic buck, when you are eating uh, a big king salmon. And so there are a lot of different things that are happening to the killer whales uh, coming from all these different fronts. And uh, I know there's a lot of folks that are working on you know, trying to work through all these different problems and prioritize them in ways that would um, give us the most likelihood for success for the killer whales. That's a little bit about the whales. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, so the salmon uh, recovery aspect, of course, is a really important aspect of helping 
address the problems for the killer whales. Um, but it's not the only thing that, that we are working on. Right. And this is, you know, obviously very important to people in this area, but this issue has, you know, been made national news, obviously with J35, who was the, the mom who pushed her dead calf, uh, you know, trying, I'm assuming up so that it could get oxygen uh, around for 17 days. And it was this very sort of emotional experience for people out here. Um, and that yeah. has I, I guess the question is, what is the the impact of those stories? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that story really touched the hearts of so many people because all of a sudden, I mean, she was um, her baby had actually died. I think it was a stillborn, and she carried the baby for seventeen days. And I can remember myself. Uh, I went on Facebook and I did a Facebook live and I was crying and I oh, was, I remember it. It was really emotional because you yeah. talked about being a mother. Exactly. Cause it really, we as mothers um, or parents, we can really feel that, that grief and that pain and that loss. And it's so often in the animal kingdom, we as humans don't get to see or experience that type of display. And it was so blatant. It was just so, um, it felt it was so hard to watch this mother go through her grieving process and watch. Is that what she was doing? She was grieving or was she, was she, I sort of assumed she was like trying to revive the baby. Well, you know, we never can know, but many um, people have started to document a little bit more explicitly that how animals can express and feel emotions. And, you know, there's a lot of information out there. Like we don't want to anthropomorphize. We don't want to put our own human trait on animals. But in this instance, I think I've heard a lot of people really talk about it in those terms. So it could have been that she was just unwilling or unable to let go of the reality of this um, dead uh, baby. But I mean, really what is that except for a a grieving process? And she, um, you know, carried that baby over a thousand miles and um, the calf really only lived 30 minutes. And you think about the life history of a, um, a killer whale, they have a 17 month gestation. So she had already had this long history with this baby in just in her gestation period. So the, I I guess those stories are awful. I, I, I guess is there some positive benefit that there's there it's raising national awareness around it or I think that there is so much more attention and interest in trying to understand how we might be able to support and help the the whales in our area and I mean for me personally after working for the past 10 years trying to restore salmon um and knowing the influence that salmon have on the restoration of these these whales it it felt like a very strong call to action to me to maintain my commitment to recovering salmon and to continue to work to advocate for these species that I, I just care very deeply about and um, trying to ensure that my children have an opportunity to go out and see the whales and have those animals influence them in the way that they have influenced me. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you're doing important work, so yeah. <laughs> we appreciate it. So, so kind of going back to your expertise, which is around habitat loss, mm-hmm. how are you effectively, you know, positively influencing parties around around this problem? Yeah. Well, I think um, the salmon recovery in Puget Sound is really done in a way that is both bottom up and top down. And I know that there's different different entities and programs use those terms differently. But for us in in Puget Sound, bottom up means that we use locally based solutions to try to come up with how we're going to meet the goals that are set from the, the top of the region. So the region helps define the target where we need to go to with conversation from the local areas. And then the local areas look around our landscape and we think about who is here and how might we be able to be most effective at um, doing the work that we need to do. So um, I have thought a lot about my role and I am a coordinator at heart. So my job title is Snohomish Basin Capital Projects Coordinator. And a lot of the work that we're doing right now is to help to recover uh, the habitat that has been cut off from um, its historical conditions and restore it so that there is you know, a place for uh, the, the salmon to, to thrive. So a lot of the work that we're doing at the the local scale is trying to work with local authorities and decision makers across different agencies to influence the way that the landscape is recovered or restored. And really, this work takes many, many different partners all working together to find common ground and move things forward. Um, And... It's really a collaborative process. So one of the things that I have been really considering as I'm moving forward is that in a collaborative process, um, every entity who at, is at the table may have different reasons for being there. So there's sort of a collaboration. So we all are trying to work on a common issue, but then there's different authorities that those different entities have to hold on to in order to be able to, um, you know, know that if things aren't working at the table, that they're able to withhold or hold on to their own authority as they um, are saying yes to these different decisions. So I guess what what do people, what whether or not it's politicians or I guess tribal leaders, what have you found that people respond to most effectively? Is it just about providing the facts mm-hmm. around the environment or how do you wrap this information up in a way that has the, the biggest impact and okay. is appealing to both people's hearts and minds? Right. So I, I used to believe that if I just presented information in the right way, that I could get everybody to agree to whatever the solution may be that we needed to see. And so I spend a lot of time packaging information into memos or into perfect Excel sheets and really trying to create 
a package of information that would sway or influence people to come over to my side. And what I have learned is that that actually doesn't typically work when you're working with different agencies that have different authorities on the land. Like you have a county government and they are holding a lot of different opposing authorities that they are trying to manage. So one of the things that they care about is salmon recovery, but they also care about supporting agriculture. They care about where people are going to go live. They care about how you manage the stormwater. They care about roads and infrastructure. So there's a whole bunch of interests that these governments are having to hold. And when we are talking about a singular action, like something that we need to do for salmon, they're having to weigh within their minds all these other competing interests and how this might relate to those. And so I, you know, I used to package information and try to shove it into people's faces in a way saying, see, 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 isn't this a great argument? And what I've really learned is that I need to step back and start asking more questions and allow curiosity to lead in the conversations as we're around the table so that I can truly understand what is motivating this individual or what is motivating this agency to come to the table with this particular position or concern or fear? Is it a competing interest or a competition on that land? Are they worried about the next election cycle? Are they worried about something that is like far outside of what I even know and can can track? And so I um, have found now like to release the fear of asking questions because I was always afraid that asking questions would make it feel like I didn't understand what was going on or that it was um, threatening the people that I was questioning. But now I'm looking at it as being curious and trying to truly understand what's the underlying issue here and how can we, if we understand the underlying issue better, um, come to a mutual understanding and maybe even find other ways, creative ways to create win-win situations. I have so many questions. This is fascinating. Um, Just on a side note, why do you think you thought asking questions might be threatening? I know it's the funniest thing. And I think maybe that because sometimes when I was asking questions, it was a little threatening because I've seen them in ways that was like, well, why would you think that? So I have really had to do work for myself to not get too attached to the direction that a conversation is going and allow myself to be um, a little bit more emotionally detached so that I can openly ask and explore these different ideas and interests. And I think it's a really challenging thing to do because obviously I'm here with a big heart and I really care about achieving outcomes for salmon and achieving outcomes for whales. And I have a particular idea of the way that's going to happen. But at the same time, I recognize uh, hitting my head against the wall and just forcing my opinion on others is actually slowing the process down. I'm not actually hearing how these other interests are trying to um, cope with some of the challenges that they they have. 
and thinking about how I can, you know, see things differently. So I think it took a little bit of personal work in order to get to a place where I felt more comfortable. Yeah. And I just, I really admire you for recognizing that. Uh, I think it's, it's common. Um, but I, I, you know, the idea that you can be more collaborative and build better relationships by asking questions is, is key. So what, what do you do with that information? So for example, if you're working with policy holders who are saying, I don't know, we need to spend more money and resources on agriculture right now. Salmon habitat recovery is lower on the priority list. Like, what do you do with that information that you've gathered by asking those questions? Yeah, I mean, that example is really like the hot topic right now. How do we continue to have viable agriculture in our area and um, also create uh recovery and restoration for the fish. And one of the approaches that I've been really digging into is instead of looking at these as a dichotomy, um, trying to understand where are the areas that we can find multiple benefits. So one of the issues that is affecting agriculture in our region quite strongly is, uh, well, there's a couple different things. One is development pressure. So as more and more people move to the region, um, we have uh, pressure being put on ag lands because uh, people want to move out into the country. It's beautiful and open, uh, but it really changes sort of the feel of the ag operations out in those areas. So that's one of the things that is a challenge for agriculture. It's also equally a challenge for salmon because as people move in, they want to build houses and create more impervious surface. So it, um, it can create additional challenges for salmon. So we have kind of a common interest in thing, thinking about how we might be able to um, create a landscape that protects agriculture in many ways and helps to open, keep it open space for um, farmers to be able to use. And then uh, the other thing that many ag, uh, agricultural purveyors are experiencing in these lower floodplain areas is um, increased floods. We have climate change that has been already changing the hydro, uh, the, the way the water flows in the watershed. And so uh, you're seeing increased flooding and that creates erosion on these various farm fields or other issues. And so one of the questions that we're currently asking is, are there ways or places where you're experiencing um, challenges that we might be able to look at doing setbacks or other opportunities to help improve ag operations that also benefit the salmon recovery needs in that area? Um, But those conversations, they take a lot of time. And they take a lot of back and forth and really getting into the details and talking with farmers and saying, what are you seeing on your land? How is that changing over time? And how would you think about what um, supporting salmon in this area and having a lot of back and forth so that we can develop a really uh, shared strategy or a shared vision for uh, a place Um, so to me, I am working very hard to change the conversation from being at odds to how can we support each other and find places of mutual benefit or mutual wins. That makes so much sense. So how do you talk 
to a farmer who, you know, is able to go to the store and buy salmon and, you know, that they're not feeling the salmon loss um, on a day-to-day basis, how do you help them recognize that this is an important issue and a problem so that, mm-hmm. so that they can start think, thinking differently about how they're farming? Yeah. Well, sometimes the motivation for the farmer isn't about salmon. Um, sometimes it's more about their bottom line or the way they're pursuing their ag operation or, um, you know, whatever the new market is that they're trying to develop. And so I think it's important in this work to recognize that not everybody has to love the same thing, but we have to think together about how we are going to shape this landscape in a way that will support all the different values that we care about. And I think that is one of the bigger challenges of salmon recovery because there's, you know, you can buy, buy fish from Alaska and other places, but for the tribes, having these populations maintained in the watersheds, having their, their treaty rights are tied to place. And so um, they need to be able to access those fish in the places that they were um, traditional lands for them and being able to, uh, you know, have those wild populations in these watersheds is, is critically important. So you're, you're sharing uh, stories and, and information that is going to like help them look at the situation differently. Is there anything like just bringing in certain experts help or are there any other techniques you use to, help them understand the how important it is? Yeah. Well, one of the things that we've really invested in is relationships. And um, we have been working really hard to figure out how we can build trust uh, between these two communities, the tribal community, the you know fish salmon recovery community and agricultural community. Um, and, really allow each other to get to know each other. So sitting down for meals, having regular meetings, having coffee, and um, kind of getting to understand our personal stories. And one of the things that is unique about the situation is the tribal people have been here um, for generations and generations for millennia. And um, that connection to the land is something that I think many of the agricultural community can really also understand because most agricultural purveyors have been here for generations as well. And so there we are able to find commonalities and build trust through these ongoing conversations. And hopefully as we continue to dive into some of the harder and harder challenging places, that trust can actually support, um, you know, having these hard conversations. So relationship building is critical. Yeah. And just understanding and the idea of building trust. I, I love that. Yeah. So you talked about this idea of kind of like how you used to put together packets and like shove information at people and, but see, like, this is what the facts show, right, yeah. uh, as being a less effective form of positively influencing other people. Are there any other 
styles or techniques that you've observed that tend to be less effective? Um, yelling at each other tends mm-hmm. to be less effective. <laughs> surprising. Yeah. yeah. You know, I think that one of the things that's really interested is, interesting is this is all a collaborative-based process to try to see. It's like a social experiment to see if we can achieve this ecosystem outcome of salmon recovery through working together. Um, so often these issues in the environment are often dealt with through lawsuits. And yes, lawsuits did help to spur and shape and direct things. But um, there is this kind of history of litigiousness that um, happens in our society. And so this is really looking at how can we do this in a way that um, doesn't erupt in a variety of lawsuits. Because one of the things that we've seen in environmental law is it can take a very, very long time for those lawsuits to go through, and then a long time to implement uh, whatever has to happen um, after that. So I think that um, trying to continue to find these paths forward outside of the courts remaining, but having the courts remain as an option if any one entity um, feels like they need to go that direction has been um, an interesting approach or avenue to to these solutions. Why, you know, it's understandable that people get so heated because these are such personal issues and they are historical issues and they are lifeline issues and financial issues. So what do you do when you're at a meeting when people, you know, tempers get flared or emotions get really high? What do you, how do you manage that? Yeah, it's hard because sometimes it's me who's <laughs> the one with the sure. high emotions. Sure. Yeah. And I mean, a lot of times it's just a matter of taking a step back and reminding everybody in the room, we were on the same same side. I really do believe that. And trying to help people to focus in on where are commonalities. And, um, you know, these are just details that we're working through. Um, but I think it's important also to allow for things to have tension and have friction because it's through that that you're able to often come up to solutions. It's just a matter of allowing it to come up to the surface, acknowledging that it's there, but not letting it to run the show, like um, letting it pass through. And then uh, hopefully from there, you'll be able to really see, get to the heart of, oh, wow, that this particular thing really triggered um, this individual. So how, what's going on there? How can we dig deeper into that? How can we understand it better? And how can we have compassion? Um, Compassion for the person who feels trapped, compassion for yourself for also feeling overwhelmed and, um, you know, compassion that this is a really hard issue, a sticky, sticky issue that's very challenging to solve. Yeah, I I agree. Like trying to have empathy for others, and it's hard though to uh, encourage others to have compassion, right? I mean, it's one thing if you're sort of recognizing it in yourself, but uh, I think it can be hard to turn a meeting around when people are yelling at each other and say, "Let's have compassion for one another." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think yeah. the first step is having compassion for yourself. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, I would agree. I would agree. So we've been talking about all the work that you are doing to move salmon recovery forward and um, help also with the preservation of the whales. What do you recommend for sort of the average concerned citizen who would like to help support preservation of Chinook salmon and, and whales? Well, if you're local, that's one thing, but just for your non-local audiences, just to recognize every, every place has a problem that needs solving. So there are a variety of different ways that you can get involved locally to learn more about where you live and um, recognizing that there's probably something that you care about that is in need of um, attention uh, just in your local place. So that's, that's one, one thing I do tend to think mostly about, you know, local solutions. I mean, we all love our national politics. They're important, but they often kind of are showy and exciting to watch, but don't often have that much influence or sway over what's happening at your very local scale. And so I always encourage people to get more involved in their own local politics and, get involved in electing uh, uh, folks who into office to share your interest or want to have uh, to work on these types of issues. Um, a lot of the time, these local electeds have more control over what is actually happening on the land or in your, your home area. Um, so that is another important thing that I tend to ask folks to consider. It's kind of what's important in your in in your local world. Yeah, and just to get involved in your own um, local political system um, because that's really where the rubber hits the road. Yeah. yeah, and it is the nice thing is it does feel like you can have an impact there, whereas everything that's swirling around us on a national level, we're kind of limited or yeah. more more limited. Yeah, yeah, and I think. Um, you know, if you're interested in looking at changes for yourself or uh, ways to become more environmentally minded, minded, I think that it can be really overwhelming when you first start to learn about environmental issues or, or dig into the information around climate change. And so just remembering it's uh, progress, not perfection, and that we are all here to take small incremental steps. And um, just little things can can add up. Um, That's great. I so appreciate it. And uh, I, I'd love to continue talking to you about the work that you're doing as you go along and you make further progress and kind of reflect on what has worked and what hasn't worked. Because I think there's a lot of analogies to be made for people in all different industries. Uh, you just yeah. happen to be at the sort of grassroots level of influencing people right now. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Great. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate it. And I appreciate an opportunity to come and talk to you about this. I mean, it's a issue that doesn't get a lot of airtime um, and has like any issue has a lot of complexity to it. So um, it's, it's always great to be able to come out and, and chat a little bit more about, what we're trying and, and how things are going. Well, that's great. And uh, Morgan, thank you so much. And I hope that we can get together and go for a hike or something sometime soon. That'd be great. Mm-hmm.